0: Hub, or as we may need to rename ourselves, two bearded guys talk to another bearded guy about automation and manufacturing on LinkedIn every Wednesday. But no, everyone, welcome to, to Manufacturing Hub. If you guys can't see, if you're listening on podcast form, Jason, our guest who will introduce in just a minute, also has a very impressive beard. And so I feel like we have to go talk about that every time we have guests who have impressive beards, which is at least once a quarter. But no, thank you, Jason, for being here. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Again, if you guys are new here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. At our Core Manufacturing Hub, we're we're an open conversation podcast. If you guys have questions, if you're listening in, please feel free to go ahead and chime into those in the chat. We love to go ahead and bring listener questions in. We love to go ahead and bring listener questions in. As we're bringing listener questions in, we do our best to go ahead and integrate them into uh, into the show, and we many times have lots of listeners who go ahead and chat amongst themselves as we're doing this. If you guys have missed all June long, we're talking about systems integrators of the future. We've had three awesome conversations so far, and I am confident, and I'm setting Jason up for success here. I'm confident that this is going to be a really interesting conversation. We're going to focus a bit on Jason's water wastewater background, which is something that, as I have told everyone, 120 episodes in now, we have absolutely missed we have missed going to have that conversation so far. So I'm happy that Jason is here to rectify that for us. Without ever, without further ado, everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. Very excited to continue our systems integration, systems integrators of the future theme. Big shout out and thank you to Opto22 for sponsoring this episode. And without further ado, Jason, everyone welcome Jason Hamlin to the show. Jason, thank you for being here. <laughs>
1: Dave, Vlad, thank you very much. Thanks for that intro, Dave. You and I know each other from a former life. You mentioned the beard, and I have to say there was just that one day you jokingly s- told me, and you looked and said, all right, it's a race to the floor. So you're beating me. You're beating me, but I'm still trying. I'm still trying.
0: I, I am, yes. It, it is a race to the floor, and I'm pretty sure I said it's a race to the floor, but I'm never going to get there. Uh, we, 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 yes, we, we, which is hey, probably the of us. <laughs> this, I would this agree. Is maybe- This is the
1: level my daughter keeps me capped at. She said she loves it. I can't get rid of it, but she doesn't want to see any more. She doesn't want to see any less. She said, "Nope, that's you, Dad. That's how I identify you." So there you go. Good. Um, uh,
0: Speaking of uh, be identified,
1: Jason.
2: Speaking of previous lives and earlier experiences, if I can ask you maybe a bit of an introduction: How did you get into automation? What have you done since getting into it, and uh, what it is that you are doing today?
1: Okay, fair enough introduction i would be remiss if i don't share a little bit of a story my my life started i mean my life started years ago i won't mention but the number but i started in food service in my teenage years right i worked in food service and then i from there moved into industrial electrical right just an opening position came up had a baby on the way needed benefits that's not a thing the food service industry offers but i bring this up because i have to say this story my oldest daughter she's She's now 22, graduated, getting ready to work for National Park Service, go her. She was eight, nine years old at the time when she made a comment, maybe a little older than that, but she made the comment, dad, I worked in food service, went industrial electrical, went into wastewater and controls. And she said, dad, your career path has followed the digestive path. You went from food service to (laughs) wastewater. you wanted corny dad jokes and toilet humor for this podcast. I'm throwing that out to my daughter, Allie. But I love it. Yeah, how I got into it, I started in the electrical trade, right? That really was... <laughs> sorry, Dave. I started the electrical <laughs> I'm trade. Dead, Jason. That's, that's where it came from. Industrial electrical, I did that for I mean, it was 11 years in the field. Got my journeyman's card, still keep it, still maintain it because I earned it and I was proud of it. There came that time where pulling big heavy wire wasn't as fun as sitting on a bucket and terminating small wires in a control panel. So that's, that was my first exposure to PLCs. I was wiring them from the field side, right? I was bringing instrument wires in. We did instrumentation, our particular company did. So I'm used to installing them, calibrating them, setting them up. I was afforded the opportunity to start going to some classes that they had put on and had at the local community college and through apprenticeship opportunities. So I came through that side of the trade. While still with that company, they pulled me in the office. I learned estimating and project management strictly from a contractor electrical side before I really started to heavily learn control work from the point of selling it, installing it, not as an integrator, but as an electrical contractor that did the full service of everything. And I left there, I went to Lynchburg to the wastewater plant to become their INC guy, their ultimately SCADA manager. So the attraction for me was HMI. I had seen it before. I'd never really programmed it till starting that that job and dove into it. And that was like the light turned on for me. I once jokingly said it, I think on my LinkedIn profile, right? I said, what do you people ask you? What do you do for a living? How do you define what you do for a living in a simple term? And I would say that I make science fiction real, right? My, my dream was a kid watching Star Trek and seeing, ooh, look at all the control panels and these operators can make it do stuff. And then I walk into a wastewater plant and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what they're doing. Why does everything they have look like crap? No pun intended. Funny that you have me on for integrator of the future. When I literally work in the industry that we constantly berate ourselves saying that we're always 10 years behind everyone else, right? We are like (laughs) the least futuristic of the critical infrastructures in the water wastewater, but I fell in love with HMI, PLC was already there learning to program one, which just naturally fit with my skill set. the networking side. That's really what drew me in from there left the city and made the jump into the private sector. Went to work for Corso for a while, then came over here with Instrologic in the management, back into the management side of things. And then we were acquired. We're actually owned by a parent company now, Inframark, who is a contract water operator, so they saw the ability to say, we're paying for SCADA and integration services enough that we're, this is a multiplier for our operators, not something that loses jobs. We should spend this money internally. So now we're one of four SIs that were bought and acquired and we're in the middle of being merged in into one legal entity, which hasn't happened yet. But when it does, we will be the automation and intelligence division of that parent company. So, Jason, that, I have a number of questions, if sure. I
2: may, uh, like one important, interesting, I want to say path for me is climbing that stack. So you've definitely worked on field devices. You've learned how to program PLCs, HMIs, SCADA systems, MES probably at this point as well. So I'm curious, you've mentioned that some of the employers were willing to maybe give you an opportunity to learn more. I'm curious, like what were the thoughts, the considerations like on your side? Was there like a very specific interest or was that just the again, like the need of the company. And I think that ultimately, maybe to reformulate that entire question is, what kind of advice would you give for someone who's trying to move up and is not finding maybe the right conversations or the right opportunities and to try and move up that stack?
1: Okay. I think one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given, if you find an opportunity for growth or training, whatever it may be, and you're working for a company that that lets you do that, Sorry. I just saw the comment that popped up. Somebody worked in the Ericsson factory in Lynchburg way to go. I know that facility. Well, my mom used to work there too. So maybe we know each other when you're at a company and you have an opportunity for training, you see a class or a course or something you want to do. And you go ask your manager, can I take that class? Can I do that? Sometimes you have to sell. Sometimes you have to convince them. I certainly had a lot of times where I had to say, no, there really is a tangible benefit. Please let me do this. The best piece of advice I ever got, and I found that it worked well, is as soon as you came back from that training, you make a point to send a thank you to that person that let you do it, right? You send a, hey, thanks for letting me go one step better. And I actually used to joke about this with the ISA. I'm still a member with ISA and we go to their conferences. I would always joke and say, I'd come back and say, thanks for letting me go to this training, we actually learned X, which I'm going to start being able to implement here, or we learned Y that's going to help me solve this problem. That that was a probably the best advice I ever got because that really made the my management immediately said, "Okay, there's real value. He doesn't just go to these training events for fun or to do whatever he wants or to goof off and drink beer. Certainly those things happen, but that wasn't the primary reason." And flip side of that, right? You actually are personally investing in yourself. If you want to grow your skill set, find those opportunities do what it takes to get them and actually take them legitimate and serious, not, you know, showing up at a conference just to meet a bunch of people and drink beer is not helping you or your employer. And it's certainly not advancing you. So
2: yeah, I would definitely agree. There needs to be some give and take. And I would say like earlier on as an engineer, me too, I would not necessarily communicate the benefits to the employer. And I could certainly see like now the value in doing so. So even though you learn a lot of good things for yourself, they might not be aware of, or I guess like your team in general may not be aware of what you are now able to bring back from yeah. the training conference, like whatever it may be, right? Like they, they offer a different value, but it is important to make it clearer in order to get those more opportunities. Yeah, so I definitely resonate with that point. And so I guess like today, if I wanted to, bring us to what you're doing in the present day. Could you paint us like more of a picture of what does the integration for wastewater, like treatment facilities, like in general look like? Is it very different from what you've seen, let mm-hmm. say like a course or other industries? Like, so I'm just trying to understand what that looks like for you today.
1: Okay. Most people, I think most people in our industry like to say, constantly and we have to do more with less we have to do more with less right we don't have money we're underfunded i've heard that a bunch it's funny because i went to a conference one time and i sat there and talking to a co-worker who was or sorry a co-worker was talking to somebody who was there with me and he said don't tell me that your industry doesn't have money i've been to wastewater plants i see all the Allen bradley's and the schneiders that you have and i work at a manufacturing plant and we use mitsubishis and I just stared at him. I'm like, Mitsubishi makes PLCs? And he said, Yeah. And I'm like, How much are they? Oh, they're a fraction of the cost. That, that's cool. How many people do you have that can program them? Everyone that works for our plant that we trained. And I'm like, Cool. We don't have that in water, wastewater. Most facilities aren't lucky enough to actually have an onboard INC guy or somebody that has PLC training, right? Hmm. That's a mid to large size plant. The small plants don't have that at all. They're reliant on integrators. So what you're going to find in water wastewater, it's not that we don't have a lot of money, but they tend to be very focused on what they buy and they're buying for quality, they're buying for long-term. Now, I'm not trying to pick on any of those vendors and say that they're the best or not. I certainly know one of them's given me such a headache with uh, supply chain issues right now, but they'll tend to gravitate towards what they know. And we are, unlike any other industry I worked in, we don't have NDAs and we don't have all these disclosures. You think about a manufacturing firm and they make a widget. If they make their widget better than everybody else, that's their competitive advantage. I don't want to tell anyone. A water treatment facility, if I find a better way to treat water, I want to tell everyone around me because who cares, right? I'm not competing with the next town over. We're both making a product that people need to survive. So the open sharing exists in a way that doesn't really, I've never seen in any other industry. we are more than happy to talk about this plant treats water hey we found this out there's pros and cons to that right that means that plant superintendents and operators tend to quickly make a decision so i've seen a a particular instrument vendor come in put in their instrument they couldn't get it working within two weeks Plant operator said yep this thing's piece of junk told all his buddies you won't see that instrument anywhere in that region right any anywhere in that surrounding region nobody's going to buy that because this one guy had a horrible time with it. And that has spread word of mouth. Flip side of that. Yeah. I don't think I've heard of that
2: in any other industry. I'll be honest with you. I, I, and I guess I'm just trying to dig in and maybe understand that a bit more. But so you're saying there's like a consensus of what makes the most sense in terms of hardware software is their sharing of like code and repositories. hmm. Like to what extent does it go?
1: Yeah. Code, probably not as much, but process, process knowledge, Mm -hmm. how they're Mm -hmm. treating, how they're doing stuff. Recommendations certainly. So like municipalities, when I was at the city, we weren't allowed to put our name behind any form of recommendation. We could vaguely say we use this. They always did you know, had to do a legal dance for case studies. But internally, talking with other utilities, we were pretty wide open. They call and say, Hey, what's your experience with XYZ? And we'd oh right away, here's what sucks, here's what's good, here's what's you'll start to see pockets, right? You'll go and see them, you'll go to a wastewater plant, see Allen Bradley. And then as you spread out, you may see more and more Allen Bradley in the counties or states that are surrounding that area. You move to a different geographic region and suddenly every plant's running a Schneider modicon. And you're like, that's interesting. A lot of that is based on two things. One, this product works, they know it works. So they tell their friends. The other thing you're going to see is the integrators that that are available to support it. Right? So I trust this integrator that's who I'm using. They use Allen Bradley, Next Integrator, Next Integrator, so on and so forth. So you start to see these kind of geographic pockets where it's very hard for a new vendor to break into some of those. I saw that if you and if you don't have a forward facing or a, a forward looking tech who wants to try new stuff, it's a very hard industry to move change in. we, we they tease us that we're 10 years behind, but a lot of that is just Yeah, there's fiscal, there's money, there's things involved with it. There's also they know what they know.
2: And I guess like that makes sense if you think of the business overall, right? If you have different factories trying to compete in the same market, then obviously there's a lot of competition and pressure to either get the price of the product produced as low as possible or ultimately innovate enough to produce it with a certain difference. Whereas I'm assuming in this case, it's not competition, it's collaboration because you yeah. ultimately all want to bring down the cost. And I'm assuming there's metrics on how much funds from the public is being used. So there's probably always reductions and you're trying, as you said, to do more with less every year.
1: Most, most, most of America does not think about water. If as long as they turn on the tap and clean comes out and they flush the toilet and dirty goes away, they're not putting much more thought into it than that. There's there's a lot that goes on and nobody wants their rates to be raised. I get that. We don't want to see that. But with everything else going around on inflation, how many times have your water rates really jumped hugely or your sewer rates? Now, that being said, there's not mass amounts of change to the processes for what we do, but there's new regulations. The biggest one that hits all of us is new regulations, tighter, stricter regulations. PFOS is the big one now. Right? These small microplastics you start to deal with these nutrient removal is crazy the stuff involved with that and that's you talk about future growth figuring out nutrient removal is one of the biggest things that people are coming up with really neat creative solutions and i worked with a company that did some ai work and doing a really cutting edge way of doing nutrient removal from stormwater before it ever hits plants and treatment facilities and that's that was pretty neat what they put together
2: Just for personal knowledge, I guess that governing body is for the process side of things, but not necessarily for controls. Or do they also impose certain restrictions on like controls, data, how it's handled?
1: So (laughs) energy sector, oil, gas sector, certainly IT, the other critical infrastructures, they've got hard and fast laws and rules, right? You shall do this. You must do this. Water has a lot of you shoulds. They haven't, been, mm. they haven't been regulated as much in the outside of just the treatment. The treatment's highly regulated. How we do it, not as much. The cybersecurity guidelines are a g- great example, right? There's been a big push to get cybersecurity guidelines. If I'm a treatment plan operator, I can look at ISA's guidelines. I can look at AWWA's. I can look at EPA. I can look at NERC. There's so many options out there, and none of them are actually, you shall do this. It's a here's a bunch of best practices that we want to slowly get you to.
2: Okay.
1: Because, and a lot of that, again, comes back to money and funding. You can, go to, you can go to oil, gas and say, you shall do this. And 10 cent increase at the pump is, has paid for that in triplicate with 10 other integrators to pilot study it for six months. Water doesn't get to move quite in that same way. And lest anybody out there scream at me, there are water for profit groups. So I have to mention that I'm talking from a municipal side. There are water for profit. There are big companies that manage and own infrastructure, and they are not necessarily local government municipality. Even my parent company, we're a contract operator. We don't own infrastructure, but we certainly come in and say, okay, for a contract amount, we will staff, run, and maintain your water system. Somebody is actually making a profit off of that, but they are trying to actually... uh, I'm not knocking my parent company. There is actually valid community resource and gain from that because we are still able to produce water you don't see the water increases hit the way that everything else has an in inflation right now
2: definitely dave what are your thoughts
0: i think it's i think it's interesting jason i think you brought up a bunch of interesting points and at some point i maybe would like to talk about the municipal versus contract but i'd like to go back to the previous point of how especially like very geographically everyone's got opto or everyone's got Alan bradley or everyone's got the same things because it is a very kind of close-knit community and i've got two questions on it i guess firstly is what can what do you think other industries can learn from the knowledge sharing like i would say and we've talked about it certainly on this show a number of times is that on the knowledge sharing side We don't do a great job from one facility to another facility that might be next to each other. And I'm not even sure that we as industries do a very good job sharing like facility to facility. If the parent company has got 10 facilities, we might have 10 completely different things and no one is sharing kind of best practices because we're worried other folks may go and may go and take our ideas and become the best running factory. So I'd love your comments and thoughts as to... Maybe things that other industries can learn from that knowledge sharing, please.
1: <sighs> it's a tough one.
0: Easy, easy question, Jason.
1: Easy question. Yeah, easy question, right? There's easy question. There's always something to be gained by knowledge sharing. There always is. There's, <laughs> yes, yes, I just see the guy saying, I've seen public-facing utilities on Showdown. Yes, there are. I can name a bunch right now off the top of my head. <laughs> There's some scary stuff out there back to your question, though. What can other industries learn? There also comes a bit of what's your actual goal, because if your actual goal is to make a profit, you probably aren't learning. You, you probably aren't benefit. You aren't benefiting anything from sharing. You don't want to nope. share. You want to make a profit. You could learn something from someone else sharing to you, but that doesn't help your bottom line. But if you're if you want to be more customer centric and you say, how do I Better serve my customers now. Finding a peer industry group where we can share and let's figure out how to work around the NDAs or don't give away the trade secrets. But if we can find a better way to collaborate to make a better product for the end user, yeah, rising tide lifts all the ships. I think there's actually ways that even in the manufacturing world, even in the competitive world, food service, I mean, a pharmaceutical that's probably just never going to happen, but. Food service at least could say, hey, let's share. Let's look at this and figure out what things can we talk about. Can we manufacture our food and our products less expensively, make them healthier? That's a concern. We could find a way to do this together. And all of us do better. If I want to paint my perfect utopia, but.
2: I would say, I think it would take a governing body that pushes that (laughs) idea. I really... I guess like I would struggle to find a reason if I'm let's say if I own that IP and those trade secrets that could make me better as a company, there's not that much incentive to share. I understand definitely that if we all do better, then the industry does better and hopefully we all profit. But I think it's it takes someone external to orchestrate that in my
0: experience. I guess let me make the counterpoint to that of Almost every facility that we see is struggling with the exact same things, right? They're struggling to hire and retain workers. They're struggling to get people through the door. They're struggling on all of the technology sides, all of the people and process sides of things. And so I think that the counterpoint to the IP that Vlad and Vlad, I think that's the argument that most facility owners and managers would make is the... If we go share our knowledge, maybe we don't have to learn the hard lesson 10 times. Maybe we only have to learn it three times, and then we can go listen to the folks down the street who have solved it, and maybe if we do a good job, we will go solve all of the people issues along the way. So I think it is something that more industries could certainly learn from the water-wastewater industry. And We've got a, had a bunch of comments on here. Rob has got a couple of comments talking about how he's surprised that water-wastewater hasn't fallen under the TSA umbrella like like oil and gas have. I would imagine that as soon as people stop having fresh water to their house, Rob, other governing agents would go from we should do this to we shall do this. And, and then folks like Jason are going to have a lot more work of going to figure out how to make the we should till we shall a reality for for more for more groups. Jason, I'd like to continue down that thought, right? So you were saying how the, these groups are very tight and very interconnected, I guess I would love kind of your thoughts of if you're a new systems integration company you're looking to break into the water wastewater arena in an area and, and we'll just say Let, let's pretend this is not the mid-atlantic where i know jason spends a lot of time working but so if you're not in the Mid if you're in the mid-atlantic just go skip like three minutes ahead but what would your recommendations be how, how can people get into some of these closer-knit industries some of these closer-knit communities
1: hello to brian mast we know each other from isa i see his comment there engineering firms in areas also make standard stuff happen right yep i agree with that so you may have a whole bunch of plc's in the same i know that we're going way backwards but a bunch of plc's in the same area because that engineering firm is what spec them all out for that area but to answer your question actually because i saw brian's name on there i'm like hey i know you from isa trade groups trade groups right how do how did i get connected why do i know people that i'm seeing popping up in the comments and why do they know me trade groups I plugged into the ISA's water wastewater division. I plugged into that kind of helped really build my career in water wastewater because I made solid good friends there. Connections at the conferences, start to talk to these people, start to meet them. Yes, I was already working in the water industry, but if I were a if I were a young and new integrator, going to some of these type of shows or AWA is one, WEF is another one, WEF Tech is like WEF's largest show, giant water conference go just go you don't even have to exhibit go spend time meet people make connections but find the local regional shows right so our area in virginia ours is water jam when water jam is put on that's awa sponsoring that's a great opportunity for a young integrator to come in and hopefully exhibit or do a presentation get to meet some people that's probably one of your better ways to break in Mm -hmm. showing up and knocking on the door at a facility is like probably the worst way It could happen. If it's a numbers game, it's cold calling. Door-to-door salesman used to be a thing. So perhaps that could work. But uh, I can't say enough on the biggest way is connecting through the local organizations.
0: Absolutely. No, I think trade groups are really good. I think they're very good to just go meet people in person and face-to-face in general, almost regardless of what industry. Cold calling does work. If it didn't work, everyone would stop doing it. But I have to imagine if you would have found Jason of, I don't know, six or seven years ago and you try to go knock on the door of his facility to try to go have the conversation of, hey, Jason, can I go help you with this thing? He's probably got, I don't know, 50 other things that he's trying to get done today so that he can go home with that. And it would be a difficult conversation unless you're immediately solving a problem he has. But no. So I guess we talked briefly earlier about municipal water, wastewater versus more, what's the other word? Do I want to say corporate? Do I want to say privately owned, privately run? What is the correct industry term? Can you tell us and maybe explain a little bit of the differences?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tread careful lest I start naming competitors and doing all those types of things, but there, there are certainly for-profit groups. There are, you can have a municipal, right? The local Mm. city or local county that manages it themselves. Then you can go to an authority, right? So a water authority is more like a self-funded group, maybe okay. bigger, may have a region, but now that is like operating as a separate entity. And from there, there's a lot of weird ways that they structure these things. But then you can jump into, really just don't wanna name names, but I've got friends that work for some of these groups. I, I think like American yeah. Water, I can say that because everybody knows them. They're all over, especially in Pennsylvania. They're huge. They own, they now come in and buy, they own the infrastructure, right? They these groups will own the pipes in the ground they'll own the tanks and they'll do what they call rate case studies where they'll invest money into building up a facility or building something up and then they use that to justify the we beefed this up for you to give you a better quality product we need to increase the rates the municipal side of things that tends to be much more like voted on by city councils right we want to raise the rates do we want to raise rates? the same town council that's deciding if they want to raise property tax is also deciding if they want to raise rates. And they have to address and deal with their citizens. And their citizens are the ones that aren't going to want to have all these increases. So slightly different on the water for profit type model, but, and I'm not knocking them at all. They provide a service and especially in large distributed geographic regions where there are so many failing plants out there because the money's not there. A small town can't fund it. Whereas you bring in some type of contract or owned group, they have the big money behind them to build the thing up and actually provide quality water. So we don't have Flint, Michigan issues happening. So I'm by no means knocking them, but it is, and it does become a different mentality. The the town worker is not for profit. They're just showing up to do their job. The Mm -hmm. profit worker is held to the metrics of a profit business.
0: Interesting. I guess I appreciate that. It's not something that I knew. Again, it's not a conversation we had. We certainly aren't trying to walk you into dangerous territory when it comes to that. So I appreciate the explanation. Vlad, I imagine you've got some questions. What are you thinking?
2: I guess I just wanted to make sure like I understand. So a private entity is ultimately just providing the service and sometimes the infrastructure and is rated so I guess the government, municipality, like whatever that is will audit what is, let's say the bottom dollar cost of, let's say a per liter or per gallon or 10,000 gallons of water. And they would drive that to be similar to what others are providing. Is that a, a general understanding of how that works?
1: Yeah, that's a general understanding. That's mm-hmm. they're usually contracted. They're usually long-term contracts. And again, these things can be structured of so many different ways. We won't get into contract discussions, but you can... I'm a small town. I cannot afford to manufacture water effectively anymore. I can't staff it. I can't build it. My pipes are failing. That's I have a hundred-year-old infrastructure. I don't know what to do. This company comes along and says, we will take this over for you. You pay us X amount over the next 20 years, and we reserve the right to run this. Or they'll come in and say, we're going to take this over. You contractually say that we own this we will buy it from you here is money we'll hand to your town and we can do whatever we want and in the fully owned model the town now is completely absolved of it there's agreements that they're going to maintain certain standards and hit quality and do everything they need to do but then they have full control of their rates in the others in the more contracted ways it's more of they'll come in and staff everything and the town is paying them an amount and then they go back to renegotiate after the if they sign a 10-year contract you're getting that for 10 years, the rates are locked in and controlled. So there tends to be a, it tends to be a, actually a pretty decent value for that. Or some of them have a 10-year contract where they'll build in. We can ask for a rate case every five years or every two years or something to that effect. So at least escalation is now controlled. When I worked at the city, one of the big fears was we don't want a private entity to take it over because we'll, oh, they'll just do whatever they want and run rampant. That's yes. all I knew working in that particular spot. When I've come out into the private sector world and seen how it works, it's actually most of them aren't doing that. They're generally not taking advantage. They're too big. If they were doing that, people would know it. They're not taking advantage. Do they spend a little more, do things with their money that's different than a nonprofit? Sure, but not to a negative. Fun fact, you're talking about the regulations. Fun, fun fact that most people don't realize wastewater is more heavily regulated than water and i will tell you why wastewater water self polices if you turn on your tap and you are not getting good quality water you're going to throw a fit because it's right there affecting you but if you flush your toilet nine times out of ten that's affecting somebody far away case in point if you're lynchburg that water after being cleaned discharges to the james river if we discharge bad product richmond deals with it not anybody in lynchburg as long as they flush the toilet it goes away so the regulations are tighter because we now have to protect an entire environment that is outside of where we are versus if the water was bad the people are going to be throwing a fit and come at you with pitchforks
2: interesting i've never so, thought of I mean, it i'm not
1: like- saying quality standards don't exist and i have lots of people that, argue <laughs> that quality standards absolutely exist but yeah wastewater tends to be much much heavier and tighter regulations it's it is a lot easier to produce clean water than it is to clean up dirty water
0: absolutely and i would say to that point if you go watch the news and you live in a place every once in a while you'll see it makes the local and or regional news of someone has discharged lots of times it's after big rainstorms and things like that and there's a combined overflow and that that has caused issues and generally there are regulations and regulatory bodies who don't particularly like that, including the news choppers as they go fly overhead and see a lot of brown and or other dirty water coming out. I guess to that point, Jason, I'd like to ask, looking forward, do you predict that we're going to see a lot more municipal groups continue to stay municipal? Do you think they're going to go more towards this mixed for-profit model? Again, not trying to get you in trouble, but absolutely are interested to get your perspective on what you think the future of that is going to look like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. If I want to keep my job, I want to hope they go one way and not the other. That's funny. I, I think that we're going to see some consolidation right i think we are i think we're already starting to see that some disciples are still most any of the sizable ones are still good and going strong but the small ones are where they're starting to see struggle right they're either as regulations are getting tighter because they're discharging and they're discharging into the environment and we're now learning every day more and more just how much of an impact some of these things are causing in the 70s they didn't treat anything and they had this fun little rhyme the solution to pollution is dilution let the storm water the rainwater, it overflows if you ever hear the term cso or if you're ever for those listening that do not work in my industry if you are ever out on a river and you see a sign that says cso discharge do not play in that if it is raining stay away from it that is combined sewer overflow that is very prominent on the East Coast. As we moved more westward, they've gone away and they separated them more and more. But that was how they used to do it. They didn't really care. There's so much volume of water moving through that river that if a little bit of sewage overflows, it's not that big a deal. We've learned with the number of people and the amount of stuff, that little bit overflowing has decimated populations of critters in the Chesapeake Bay, which is like the largest watershed we have on the East. That's why those regulations are getting tighter and tighter. So a small locality, they can't keep up. One of one of one of my current customers, very small customer, they're a school. And the school has their own small package discharge treatment plan that is in dire need of refurb. So we're in the middle of we're in a contract. We're not doing the full refurb. We're just an integrator. But that refurb is happening and we're putting in some technology and stuff for them that's gonna really what an advantage they're getting because we live in a world where we can get some inexpensive things. I'm going to plug our sponsor because I'm actually using an Opto 22 Epic on that project with MQT. And we're hosting their SCADA in the cloud as a product that we offer. But that's the type of thing that if they don't have something like that, then I'm going to see consolidation. So we're either going to see adoption of new technology or consolidation
0: interesting i love that and i'm going to take this moment to segue because jason hit us up so well to our sponsor we've got some folks to thank right so we want to thank the guys over at opto 22 for going and sponsoring this theme and sponsoring i guess this conversation and this theme opto 22 is a california-based privately held manufacturer of industrial automation hardware and software they've got nearly five decades of experience with an installed base in the millions at thousands of customers worldwide and are known for highly reliable, mission-critical, USA-made products backed by lifetime warranties. What makes Opto 22 products unique is their engineering philosophy for combining rugged, reliable OT systems with open IT technologies into affordable and versatile products that save developers, engineers, and technicians time, money, and effort. Opto's flagship products are the Groove Epic and Edge Programmable Industrial Controller and the Groove Rio, an Ethernet-based universal IO remote system. Learn more about Opto 22 and the Groove product line at opto22.com. And now Jason, it is my favorite time when we make Vlad do the Vanna White and go showcase the Opto 22 that, that are currently up above his head. Thank you, Vlad. We've got the Groove Rio and the Groove Epic up there doing a bunch of awesome things. I, I, oh. I can show off mine. It's right next to me. Just oh, you. very nice. I've got one, but it is currently buried in a place that I can't showcase. And I have once again missed the opportunity to do that. But no, thank you for everyone at Opto22 for sponsoring this. Yeah, for sponsoring this theme and all of your continued support of the show and of the community. No, Jason. So I think that this has been really exciting. I really appreciate all of the background knowledge. Again, I promise Jason going in that, that we as a show know very little about it, which is why I feel like we've got so many interesting conversations that we've come up from the water wastewater theme and topic. I'd like your perspective because I know you've worked in a little bit of other places, like a little bit of other industries from your perspective. What do you think wastewater does like exceptionally well on the integration side? What do you think that maybe the wastewater integrators can learn from other industries?
1: Oh, there's a, I think there's a lot we could learn from other industries. It, (laughs) other industries are our testing and proving grounds. And that's amazing because we joke that we're 10 years behind. We're not really 10, it's probably more like five, but The industries that have money, actually Alan Ray, a good friend of mine, Mm -hmm. Alan Ray and I, he was instrumental in trying to start this cross-industry collective group with actually with inductive automation. And we were on that board together for a while. It's COVID kind of slowed a lot of stuff down, but that dream we both shared that there is so much value in bringing multiple industries together to bring this collaboration because one of the things his particular industry, oil, gas had money to test into R and D and to say, Hey, let's try things. What they were hamstring strung by was, I'm going to say regulation. I'm going to say they could not just rapidly go do a thing. It had to be proven out, proven heavily because you've got an industry that can very quickly cause ecological disaster or life altering situations or death or blow an oil rig and see what happens. So they don't get to just go test something. And I'm not saying that we're loosey goosey in the water side, but we certainly have a little more freedom and ability. Most of the facilities out there, we still have ways to automate or to manually run our processes. Most Mm -hmm. every plant, an operator has some form of procedure or Mm -hmm. brain trust knowledge to figure out how to run that facility. Try that in a manufacturing environment. It's not gonna happen. You you can't do that. Try that in a petroleum distiller. You can't run a stack in hand. That doesn't happen. So we have a lot more ability to prototype some things or try something out because we can buy time. We have hydraulic shock. Hey, I wanna test this PID control. I wanna test this. Hey, a buddy of mine in oil gas found this really cool product. He told me about it. Can I try it here? Can we set up a sample or a demo? We actually, Alan and I had this crazy vision of, hey, (laughs) you should send me some things because I can't afford to buy them and I can put them in place. And we never really got to that level, but yeah. But I think that there's a lot we could learn from other industries for standards. Our our industry has a lot of standards, but they're so wide and varied. And the best thing about standards is there's so many, just pick your favorite. We kind of struggle in the water side sometimes, right? Not everyone. I'm not saying all of water in general, but it certainly does exist. Oh my gosh, that HMIs and graphics and PLC code is just scattershot and it's all over the place. We're a little less flexible. Whereas like a manufacturing environment, they're used to doing batches, doing flipping PLCs around saying, okay, here's how we make this process work. Oh, we need to innovate and make more money and do it this way. And we can readjust on the fly. And wastewater environment was like, we're going to switch from chlorine gas, which is horrible and killing everyone and move to sodium hypo. Okay. Can we rapidly do that process? No, we're ripping out every controller and PID loop and PLC we have, because we don't know how to retrofit anything and and I'm being in hyperbole here, but we are not modular. We are certainly not a modular industry.
2: Jason, I guess I wanted to dig in a little bit more on what drives some of those, I want to say proof of concept slash maybe innovation ideas or projects. I think even earlier you mentioned that there's a new regulation for microplastics if I'm not mistaken. So is that, I guess, is there regulation and new requirements on the process that then push you to innovate or is there maybe like cost savings that push you to innovate? What does that maybe side look like?
1: (sighs) I don't know that (laughs) I wish regulations pushed us to cost savings. Cost savings is the, that's just what you have to figure out. Regulation, when regulation becomes you shall, instead of you should, you got to do what you got to do. And a lot of times we have, a lot of our regulations allow us to do best available, best practical technology so we may say I have seen regulations come out to say these are the treatment levels we want but best available technology doesn't exist to get us there so this is what we're going to do and we're allowed that variance it's a EPA says this would be the ideal goal but the real world says this is all you got or somebody says yeah I can build you a sensor that gets you there but not at a price point you can afford yeah that's how that works
2: I wanted to ask you, I guess, like on the personnel side, and I'm not familiar with, let's say, like the maintenance engineering structures of the wastewater industry, but I think like over the last like couple of years in manufacturing, at least we've seen a lot of pressure from of increased demand for automation and just a general lack of personnel. Is that something that you also see in your industry or is that like different? Like how does that play into wastewater?
1: Yes, yes, we see that. Uh, yes, we see that anyone looking to get into automation and the wastewater, please email me, we are hiring and it's thanks. It actually lets me pick up. I see Alex on there. He was my former boss. So I see your comment, Alex. I got a thanks for the poop emoji, former boss, still friends, but uh, he also made the same comment, right? The, do we see more difficulty getting people into water wastewater compared to high tech and he says, given the nature of the facilities, that's funny, but I wouldn't say the nature of the facilities yes and no lots of places can be dirty a wastewater treatment plant doing what it's supposed to do doesn't smell just fyi when they stink there's something wrong with the chemistry at the plant they should not be that that bad of a smell they might be great but they shouldn't be bad it's not necessarily the facilities it's the pay the sad part is for our industry we're i have a rock star programmer I'm not going to say his name on this podcast because I know for a fact that he would be snatched by many people at a salary that I cannot competitively give him right now. And that's, that is a sad reality. I I hate that. I know that I'm sure somewhere my HR lady is probably freaking out when I'm saying this online live, but (laughs) we have hurdles right there. There are more glamorous sides of automation. Certainly there are more, really fun cutting edge things mostly used to be that the automation folks were coming out of the electrical background. They came from relay logic. That's why ladder logic programming still exists now. Now it's structure text. Everybody's a computer science major and they're coming in, they're doing structure text for the new crop of folks. That's more where we're able to find someone is computer science that decides to do something wild, crazy, different, the many paths that get you to system automation, but there is much more glorious things. They come in, Hey, I want to work with, I want to work with the coolest new tools. I'm like, yeah, that really, that's not saying it doesn't exist in our industry, but it's not the norm. You know, it. Yeah. how many new automation techs coming in are going to have to go deal with RS 485 serial networks and serial Modbus in our industry? A lot. <laughs> commonly a lot PLC fives are still out there running strong and they don't want to get rid of them. It's not even a cost. Can you get rid of them? You go to the plant and they're like, no, nah, it works. You know, that's going to, that thing's going to go away when enough people retire out that no one knows what it is anymore. And then the migration love it. becomes slow. I love it.
2: I have a PLC five in, uh, in the <laughs> garage from a, an old decommissioning project that is hopefully appreciating in value. Yes, you keep more of them. So I know exactly who to call when I'm ready for retirement. Call the
1: water industry, because they're still running. They are still running them out there. Yeah, no, we absolutely are seeing workforce struggles right now. That's a... But across the board,
2: I guess you've mentioned also you're putting in like SCADA systems, so I'm assuming like you're doing more like data collection projects. So are you seeing the need for more people with boots on the ground or is it more like programmers that aren't necessarily joining the industry or across the board?
1: A little bit across the board. In inst- and actually, finding solid instrumentation people is a big struggle for us right now. I can find, I can find an installer. I can find a wireman, as how we would classify it. I can find somebody that can wire panels, install panels. And they don't mind doing it, and they like it. And we can good, good pay, good benefits. We can handle that pretty well. Finding somebody who has really truly process instrumentation knowledge is hard to get because they're either coming from an oil background or a heavy pulp and paper has heavy process instrumentation and they all tend to be fairly well compensated we'll say that or they're used to a level of standard that the water industry isn't quite i we did some installs at, at a major soda manufacturer that was doing monthly calibrations and certifications on every instrument in the plant because the product quality had to be right i've worked on the exact same instrument you in know wastewater facility that we touch it every six months <laughs> that they're like yeah just make sure it's doing all right they don't change the thing out monthly but it's like yeah. yeah every six months yeah let's just change the tubing if it looks like it needs it there's no reason to waste money and it's wait what <laughs> like we were doing this monthly at the
0: okay if you say so interesting I guess, Jason, let me back the question off a little bit, like away from specifically water, wastewater and more into systems integration or more into kind of industry as a whole. And I wanna ask you how we get more people into the industry, right? And because we need more people in the industry, we need more people to go through the process of understanding the process of RS-485, of kind of everything that we've talked about. Maybe some of them will learn on PLC-5s. Hopefully most of them will not have to go to facilities that are completely run on PLC-5s anymore. But in all reality, they will. How do we go about getting more people in? I have to imagine it's more than just finding ways to pay them more money.
1: It is absolutely right. It is absolutely more than just that. In fact, I've heard it said many times and I've seen it to be true in my life. People rarely leave a job just because of money. It's not mm-hmm. that. How you get more people, you're going to get me in so much trouble. Upper I'm management, trying not to Jason. I'm going to give you an honest answer. Upper management needs to broaden their horizons and change their expectations. It, Where are we drawing our labor pool from? If we're looking for carbon copy, cookie cutter, graduates that have engineering degrees that pursue this and do that, then that's all you want. Awesome, you're fighting against everybody else. One of my most solid project managers here was a general manager at a movie theater for 14 years. And they thought I was crazy for hiring her because they were like, why? She has no process knowledge whatsoever. I'm like, I don't need her to have process knowledge. I need her to know how to manage. And that she showed she can do for 14 years. Yeah, take a chance. Take a chance. I uh, Now I'm going to give away a trade secret. We went and did a process, like a process overview and a little bit of a like a, I call it a dog and pony show. We brought instruments. We brought some PLCs. We did a kind of a lunch and learn day at a Job Corps at a Job Corps facility. And these were kids that were in the IT track. And I don't know how much you know about Job Corps and what it all exists for. These kids were in the IT track. They've got some wildly different struggles in their past of why they have ended up in Job Corps. They're on IT, as far as they know, they're all supposed to go get jobs working in IT. And the reality is half of them won't. They aren't the right mold for the IT world. And we showed up and said, hey, are you interested in looking in another way? I got a resume sitting on my desk right now from one of the kids that that graduated through that program that said i really thought what you guys did was really cool i want to do more of that so that's it broaden the horizons look at try to look in different places and try to make your company be very approachable to that person that may be wanting to try it out or looking for an opportunity and thinking like oh i can't do that i don't know anything about it or those people are nothing like me that's the only way we're gonna that's the only way we're gonna do it
0: interesting <laughs> i like that sorry, i'm, laughing, uh, at the, so, I'm
1: uh, laughing at the bell modem comment. sorry
0: yes i think Models rob is the first person rob in front of me I know. I love it. It's hard to look at anything else, but thank you to Rob. I think Rob is the first person to comment on both LinkedIn at the beginning of the show and the Manufacturing Hub YouTube channel towards the end of the show. So thank you for that, Rob, unless we've somehow managed to have two Rob Grams in the comment, in which case that's actually cool. But no, so I I like that comment, Jason. We've certainly had lots of conversations around workforce development. I think that there, there is certainly need to go find people who had perhaps other and different career trajectories or thoughts and go yep. expose them to this. So basically every time we go talk to an engineer who's got a college engineering degree background, including including Vlad, the comment is, hey, these PLCs, the, the industrial stuff is really cool. but I had one class about it or yeah. it was like a, a passing comment. Some we see more of it, especially on folks who are on the mechatronic side. And so I think that that is interesting, but I think that we certainly need more people who have different backgrounds and, and hopefully with the need for manufacturing and automation to continue to have more folks as a career opportunity, it will it'll force people to go broaden their horizons as, as we are going and having the, these conversations. Th- thank you to Rob for continuing to, to always watch the show by whatever means necessary. No, so I think that this is exciting, Vlad. There are so many ways we can go, but I feel like I have asked Jason at um, least sixty percent of the questions so far, and I've I'll gotten wait. Jason in trouble at least eighty percent of the time. Yeah. So, Vlad, Vlad, what are your I'll, thoughts? I'll make one.
1: I'll make one more quick mention, just since I really haven't dug myself deep enough. I haven't actually used a recruiter, so this is not an endorsement. But when all else fails, this is the best hot sauce I've ever had. So. Is it's sitting on my. Us. It's sitting on my desk, but uh, that's possibly another avenue for helping people get into automation. But I can't speak to that directly. I just know. How did I not it. get a I, bottle? I, I of buy that five time. bottles at a time.
0: Did you really not? Oh, Drew gave me one at, auto, at automate, glad. Yeah, I, I think we got lost in the conversation
2: right. and we just yeah. Anyways, that's a missed so, uh, opportunity. We will, we'll have to figure out.
0: We will. We, I guess I will make the comment. Alan Ray, episode forty-six on Manufacturing Hub. If yep. you guys are listening, a great conversation. I realize now that we absolutely have to bring them on. And then Drew Horsley and Jordan Humphreys were on Manufacturing Hub at the beginning of the year in an episode that I will have to go dig up. I'm big friends of the show. You're welcome. Um, Making you go way back in the archives. Absolutely. I was not prepared to go dig that one up today. But Vlad, can you walk us back to a safer topic of conversation for Jason, please? I don't
2: know about safer, but I do want to understand a little bit more on the technical side of of wastewater. And again, as someone who's been in traditional, I want to say food and bev and pharma manufacturing, I want to say for me as the controls engineer, the requirements always kind of leaned on the higher speed side and discrete product manufacturing and so there was a lot of pressure to obviously create more widgets at a faster rate and so for me let's say like scan times were very important and pushing the limits of let's say even the vision systems was a critical factor so in wastewater as i understand it it's not speed that is the priority but more reliability of the process sort of instrumentation that picks up on different chemicals and so i'm assuming there's a lot of corrosion that then changes your values and so there's a lot of those nuances at play so i'm curious maybe if you could paint us a better picture jason for someone who's not worked in that industry what are the technical implications
1: yeah that's really fair environment's probably a big one right it's if you're really lucky you've got a facility that has their plc's in a cabinet in a semi-enclosed box or you've got like blue plains right they're massive they're one of the biggest wastewater plants over here on the east and uh, amazing facility i got to tour it they don't have an issue with environment, with where their controllers and such are. And the sensors in the water and wastewater industry, most of the most of the brand name stuff is built to survive it. But when you get into the small facilities or the even the mid-sized plants, yeah, you're starting to deal with corrosion, chemical issues. I came from the electrical trade. We threw everything into stainless steel. If you needed it to last, you put it in a stainless box. If you throw stainless steel into a room where sodium hypotanks are, it's gone in a fast amount of time. Hypo eats stainless, loves it. It's like its favorite snack. So yeah, I have watched a somebody put in a stainless enclosure and like, oh, yeah, here's what we're putting in. And I just laugh. I'm like, <laughs> that ain't going to last. You're going to have to go find fiberglass. You're going to have to go find something else. Oh, random one. Ice cube relays in a dewatering process. Hydrogen sulfide gas. H2S loves to eat everything in its brother too, including copper and silver. It just gobbles it up. And I watched a poor electrician changing ice cube relays like every other month because the contacts would get so corroded and eaten up, they'd stop working. And that, that particular manufacturer sells those same relays. They fit the same base with gold contacts and H2S gold is pretty impervious to H2S. And it was like this $2 per relay cost change fixed your work order problem for the rest of your life. So there is certainly a consideration of environment that goes in there. And yeah, you're right. You don't need speed. We don't need scan times. We want reliability. We definitely want reliability. And in a manufacturing world, you usually have people who are their job is to keep those systems up and running. That is not as prevalent in the utility side of things. So you also want something you want it to be robust enough to run without routine maintenance, probably without, proper maintenance it is probably being installed and run to failure in 80 percent of the plants out there there's not a maintenance program because there's no one to do that maintenance yeah now you're looking at hopefully your engineer or your system integrator is looking at is it conformal coded is it easy enough for the average maintenance technician to go up to it if I can, if i can walk up to it and tap the screen and it tells me things in english every plant operator can work with that if they walk up and they're like okay If it's seven blinking reds and two greens, this is what it means. They're not going to, now they're just calling someone saying, Hey, my thing doesn't work and we get that a lot. (laughs) Interesting.
2: Interesting. You've also mentioned like SCADA maybe and the data side, what's the opportunity there, are you seeing like more facilities Mm -hmm. being working a bit remotely, providing more information or what's the drive on the data side?
1: You'll get it. You'll get into my secrets now. So our company, when we. Come together. I said I mentioned it earlier. We're the A and I division, right? The automation and intelligence division. The intelligence is the kind of the cool side of that. That's the part that I'm starting to get myself more and more into in our new entity. There is so much opportunity in water, wastewater for things like AI, machine learning, big data that exists in manufacturing that people are. They're already doing this on the manufacturing world. They're already, people are doing predictive analytics to tell you when particular things are going to fail or when these are going to happen. I've been to conferences five years ago where people were like, this is the most cutting edge thing. Look, I can predict every bearing failure in the plant by collecting this little bit of data. That was five years ago. You say AI and machine learning in most wastewater plants and operators look at me, I'm not letting Skynet take over my plant. So that's that's the view that they have. When we have this drive to do more with less, and we really do want to produce water as cost-effective as possible because everyone needs it. It is infinitely critical for day-to-day life. Now we have great opportunities to say, can we collect this data? Can we, if we don't have enough staff to maintain and keep equipment, can we at least start to proactively say, that pump's not performing right. Let's pull it before it actually fails and you have a sewer overflow in downtown. And yeah, there's... The technology to do that is is available at a cost-effective rate. There are integrators other than just us that are doing this. We just hope to do it the better. No, Jason, do best. you don't
0: have to say that. Jason the, uh, and, and Instrologic are the only integrators.
1: <laughs> the, the sponsor name up here in the corner, I'm doing a lot with their products right now because they, they have all the stuff built in that I need right? VPN, secure access, MQT, all the fun buzzwords, we can say those fun buzzwords, but when I can put a device out there for under $1,000 that can collect data and securely move it somewhere that we are hosting that may or may not sound like Amazon GovCloud, that matters, right? Now I've got, that's on-site, on-prem, on U.S. soil data storage <laughs> that two, three years ago, you would have never con- convinced a mid-sized utility to let their data go to the cloud. A big utility, yes, the big ones are doing all kinds of stuff. Right, They are much bigger. They are much more like manufacturing. Some of the large facilities out there, they're doing cutting edge and awesome stuff like anyone else. But the small to mids, they haven't been able to. Now we have cost effective ways to give them tech that they've never been able to have. I mean, it, seeing a guy go to a rural trade show and pull his phone out and open it up and be like, yeah, I see what's going on in my plant, and I can turn things on and off manually. Them being able to do that, we're able to help them do that before some of the bigger groups are able. And that's a cool feeling. There's nothing better for me than when one of the customers comes back and he's man, I pulled my phone out, and I was showing these people how to do it, and their plant's 10 times my size, and they want to know how how did we do that. (laughs) (laughs) I need to change my margins. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding, kidding, kidding.
0: Awesome. I I love this, Jason. I wanted to say, we do want to shout out Opto 22. I know they make relays. I don't have any relays. I feel like I I talk about the relays enough. I need Mm -hmm. to get Benson to send me a couple, but they do have relays as well, which is absolutely something I wanted to point out. Would have saved
1: Uh, a hydrogen gas problem with one of the solid state potted relays. Honestly, that would have been a fix.
0: That is... Wow. There are just so many places we can go with this, but we don't (laughs) want to get Jason in too much more trouble. So Jason, I, and I've pre-warned you that I like to ask everyone to go tell us what the future looks like. And I'd like to ask you what you think the future of the water wastewater integration industry looks like, and we don't want to get you in trouble. So it could be Mm -hmm. like in generalizations, where do you think that the water wastewater systems integrators are going to go in the next five years?
1: on the trends that I'm seeing now, and and it's gonna sound funny to say it while I'm in the middle of it, consolidation, I'm going back to consolidation again, but I do see that we're not the only ones going through merger acquisition and consolidation. And I say that because yeah, all right, (laughs) tread lightly. (laughs) There is there is certainly a fear, right? I'll publicly say this, there's certainly a fear. If we consolidate, we come become this big conglomerate, can we still serve our small customers? can we or are the little guys going to come back in which used to be us like we are the little guy we instrologic 12 people we're a little guy our bread and butter is these small to mids now i'm going to sound like the corporate recruiter our division president yes he absolutely still sees the value in the small to mids like he has not thrown away our customer base which honestly is why my people are still here in this merger they're looking saying okay they see the value, they want to protect the same customers that we've come to know on a personal level of relationship. Yeah, I think this consolidation thing is actually going to happen because I've seen other integrators going through it. What we have now is buying power. What we have now is an ability to get products cheaper. My 12 person firm didn't, I couldn't buy things at bulk or at good pricing that the way I can pull now. Yep. Right now, when we become legally named, we're like a 160 person integrator, but yep. our company with parent company is, yeah, cheaper to buy infrastructure and build it out. Yep, I see Rob. Our parent company, we're 3,000 employees, total of our entire organization. Congratulations, I have benefits like a 3,000 person company. So, my medical insurance is really nice to help my kids out. My tuition reimbursement plans are really nice. That's one thing that attracts workers. But on the flip side for my customers, I now have an organization that when I sit at the table with somebody and say, yeah, so how cheap can you get this? And they're like, we can give it to, here's our size and scale and where every one of our branch offices are. And this is the size of our customer base. And they're like, oh, let's talk. Or, hey, tell you, what if I just go ahead and buy 50,000 units right now and stock. Mm -hmm. Now, can you get that number? We got some purchasing people that are doing some crazy stuff that I've never seen before as an integrator. I'm like, wow, go you. And that's being passed on to our customers. We don't look at that as saying, that's our competitive advantage to make triple the profit. We're saying that is what is making that's what's winning us jobs. So now I've given away all the secrets
0: i think that's a really good point and i'm going to do a little bit of a teaser so vlad and i on friday are going to come on to a theme recap and i am confident we're going to go have the conversation of larger integrator versus smaller integrator right there are benefits as jason said to larger integrators smaller integrators are generally more nimble that they're able to go do things in a slightly different way But especially when you're a really small integrator and you're working with a large company, they are going to go look at you and say, what happens if you get hit by a bus? If something happens to you and the team of the three or five or 10 of you, then how are we going to have that continuation? How can we make sure that we don't lose all of the work that we've put in?
1: I'm going to mention this too along those lines, because I am by no means trashing the small integrators. I, I was one. I used to work for one. I still work for one. I love the small guys. They are absolutely more nimble. They are absolutely able to do things that we can't. They don't have policy and procedure, and and that I, I don't need to get 17 different people to sign off on an expense report when there's only 12 people yep. in the company. The way that we have to do some of this now, and that's fine. But when I say consolidation, don't rule out strategic partnerships either. We yep. have worked with other integrators, and a and a I'm going to throw his name out there, Trace Route, right? Because it. Josh, who is a Josh. good buddy of mine. He's I've amazing. got to look up
0: Josh's episode.
1: Yeah, he's amazing. And we have contracted him. There is nobody there. Hands down, there's nobody in my company that has the OT network knowledge that he does. And we recognize that said, hey, can we work together? So don't rule out strategic partnerships as part of consolidation. But we're seeing it. That's the only way we're surviving supply chain issues and everything else going on in the world. We're seeing consolidation. That's why we're going through it,
0: too. Absolutely. We'll throw out to everyone listening, Josh Varghese is episode there is. 59. Jason is really making me work the previous episodes. <laughs> just oh, with if I don't get
1: 119 different name references by the end of my episode 120 here, I haven't done my job.
0: It is going to be close. Now, Jason, so that, that is awesome. Thank you so much for that. I want to go talk a bit about career advice. and I feel like you gave a bunch of great opportunities earlier of how we as an industry have to go out and help people find that our industry is an industry, maybe that they're, they're interested, excited to do some of that hands-on work. But if you are talking to someone early, middle career, looking to get into maybe systems integration in general, what is the best advice that, that you would have for them?
1: I feel like most of your guests say, don't do what I did. So I'm gonna flip that around and say, do exactly what I did. Okay. Um, be snarky, be sarcastic. no No, you can do that if you want that. <laughs> No, in all seriousness, right? I will say that, do what I did. I said it earlier, trade organizations, trade, full disclosure. I know the next question, so I'm not going to answer the, that rolls into this, but trade organization, network conferences, ICC yeah. with Ignition's ICC, BT Skada Fest. go to a trade conference, jump into some of that. that's going to help you. Yes. There's a lot of people in the U S that have credited Josh. I see that comment. That's, there's a lot that's going to help you be humble. And be diligent, like all joking aside, as much as I sit here and I'm snarky and a goofball, I would say that most everyone that knows me routinely tells me I'm humble. Most humble (laughs) thing a humble person can say is to brag about being humble. But I was going to say, be humble and be diligent in your work. Always do not lose the perspective that somebody else out there knows how to do it better, faster, quicker. You always have something to learn. Be diligent in your work take advantage of opportunities right squish pride pride's going to kill you be proud be proud of the work you do but man when just learn tact that's going to carry you so far that's my that's my advice you want to know how I stumbled into this there's nobody wakes up and says i want to be a system integrator when i grow up you don't find a like where's the system integrator starter kit you do actually it's like a polo shirt and a backpack but you don't this isn't a career. People know what lawyers are and doctors are. This just isn't that career path yet. So how do you get into it? You find something that you're really good at, that you enjoy doing PLC, HMI, some kind of programming right? instrumentation yeah. for Josh. It's literally networking. And then he was like, oh, there's an opportunity to go into the OT world where no one knows what's going on here. Find something that you're good at and that you enjoy doing. Then you're not afraid to do it. Don't be afraid of the entry level job. If you're entry level and that's what you are, own it, do it, get in there, work hard and better yourself. The trade orgs, ISA, AWWA, WEF for the, for my particular industry domain, but for whatever yours are, find those conferences, be humble, be diligent. And then the day you find yourself stuck and straddled to a desk in the management role, like I am now, servant leadership, if you think for a minute that your job is to tell them what to do, you're already failing. You work for the people that are working for you. And if you remember that, then yeah, you have, you will have a lucrative and successful career doing things you enjoy doing. That's all I got. I think that is...
0: Oh, 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 That's all he's got. Some of the best advice that we've gotten for people (laughs) all across, that's all he's got. Thank you for that, Jason. I I think that that is awesome. I think that especially being able to have the perspective of where you are in your career and realize that no matter where you are, there are always people who have Done something right that they found ways to do it better. Mostly just stumbling upon ways to do better, and that keep, keeping the perspective of where you are in your career is very important. So I, I thank you for that. Next question, we'd like to ask you for a book recommendation. I, I know you've come prepared.
1: <laughs> I did. Full disclosure, you kind of mentioned it. You're like, hey, do you have a book? And I told you, I said, do the work, Steve Stephen Pressfield, do the work. Crazy one. I don't know how many people recommend that one, but it's a small book. It was like one of the ones that Seth Godin had sponsored for him to put together, but that. it ties in so nicely to my career advice literally do the work (laughs) realize the things that are going to sabotage you that book kind of bases around like what's going to sabotage your successful project and how are you going to not get it done but do the work that's the one i'd recommend and then and i got another one i got to throw it out there just for fun the high performance hmi handbook it was a pas book right it was bill hollowfield eddie habibi and i'm going to mention it because i have an autographed copy of it by both Ooh. by both authors that was given to me as a gift again i'm tying this right back to career advice i bought that book when i was new in the trade i read it i knew in the trade new in this industry read it said oh man this is a great content and i'm gonna pin that for a second great content this is amazing this is going to revolutionize everything i do at the plant so i took a thing and latched onto it when i say find something you enjoy i took a thing i enjoyed latched onto it that drove my career i am now mid-level through my career and i'm fortunate enough to go to an executive level conference that i was not an executive i'm the only guy there in the polo shirt when everyone else is wearing blazers right i didn't get the like executive starter kit i only had the integrator starter kit (laughs) had my backpack and they all had briefcases it was a weird feeling but I literally run into Eddie Habibi and I sat there and it was like almost starstruck and I'm like, you're the CEO of PAS. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I loved your book. And I'm like, you're, you and Bill's book started my whole career. And that man was so touched. He went back and sent me an autographed copy with both of their signatures with a little note on it. That made a difference. You want to talk about what drove my career? People like that, right? Realizing that this man has accomplished something. I don't know half of what I think I want to know. Always be looking up, right? driving that way, but I'm going to recommend that book. Now I told you, I was going to pin it in 2012, that book transformed my life. That book changed the scope of everything I did and how I did HMI. Our company's still like we're 50, 50 across all of our business units. We have high performance customers. We have non high performance customers. I absolutely think that we are in a post high performance world high performance HMI, the concepts and standards, right? I'm not knocking that book. It's a great book, definitely read it. It will teach you valuable things about how people think, then take the lessons in that book and think it's 2023, what do and how do I apply this now? Because right now every operator coming into a plant has a smartphone in their pocket and they can pull out their phone and run a native app. And when Facebook makes a new update, somebody will complain about it and somebody will post and start a new group saying, take, give me back the old one. And a month later, it's fine. They know how to innately, instinctively run and use these things. And if we can't build our SCADA screens to look the same, then the cognitive workload of a high-performance HMI screen right now is Mm -hmm. almost as bad as what was before. They're good. I'm not knocking them. They're good. But they could be much more blended and better in the world we live in now. And and, and things are always changing, so there's always stuff to learn. But I'm still going to plug that book because that book transformed my life.
0: I think that all of those comments were amazing. My comments when people bring up High Performance HMI Handbook as a book are that, that it's a great book, but it's a great starting place. And that especially in 2023, we've got a whole bunch of UX, UI designs and design courses that people can go through even free now through Google and other companies to, to help understand, to, to make it, to, I think to your point earlier, Jason, to help get rid of ugly screens and put more intuitive screens in front of operators who know how to use their cell phones. So I think that that is fantastic. And then the last question for you, Jason, is who should reach out? So obviously you guys are in the water wastewater industry. So any of our water wastewater industry folks who are looking to go purchase something, please contact Jason or please contact whomever over them to go have those conversations. But no, how can our listeners help you? Are you guys looking for more customers? Are you looking to have kind of those conversations with other technologists? What can we do for you?
1: wow we have such a gamut of things we offer what could you do for me i would like to hire more technicians i would like to hire people definitely have we definitely have a need if you're out there and you're in the automation world and you're looking or you're looking to break into water wastewater automation or you want to change a pace yeah by all means hit me up by all means anybody feel free email me i rarely give away my cell phone but i always give away my email but i will say lisa jones and that's just lisa.jones like it's spelled like it sounds at inframark.com she is our hr liaison for the AI division so if there's anybody that's actually directly interested you can send her a resume directly and say hey jason told me to kick this to you it will not be filtered through ai she will actually get those and she will look at them awesome. and, um yeah and then and, and if, this- you're, if you want us for a customer yes please hit me up
0: <laughs> Perfect. But you guys are, you're mostly in the Mid-Atlantic or the company is larger than that at this point?
1: We have the Mid-Atlantic, the Southeast, and the, I guess they're calling it Central right now, but Mm -hmm. but we're basically from Pennsylvania down to Florida and out into Texas, Oklahoma. Okay. Um, But we have, our parent company has presence and I think, 20 some states at this point we've got uh, managed facilities in california all over so the the a and i division at this point would effectively travel anywhere
0: exciting so i've got a bunch more questions but i want to ask vlad if he's got any questions or comments before we say goodbye to everyone for the show
2: no, Jason, I really appreciate your time. I've certainly learned quite a bit. I think I still need to research a few of the components that you've mentioned about wastewater. But yeah, it's, it sounds really interesting. Definitely appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Yes. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much for coming. Again, we probably have 20 more hours of conversation of what goes on inside a water and wastewater facility, but we will not get you in trouble and save that for a further conversation. If you guys have made it this far, please feel free to go ahead and hit the like button. If you guys are watching on LinkedIn, please make sure that you're following Jason and myself and Vlad and the Manufacturing Hub Network. We come live just about every Wednesday at four o'clock and we will, if you guys are watching to this live, be on Friday, which is July 30th at one o'clock East coast time good. for a theme recap in which you can good get good. all of Vlad and my perspectives and, and we will go ahead and get in trouble as we are going to give all of our perspectives. If you guys have made it this far on podcast form, please hit that like button. Please give us the follow and rate us five stars. I have learned that if I ask people to like the podcast and do those things, then people like the podcast and it gets to more of you, but until Friday, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank,
2: Thank you, Jason. Yep.